If a woman heals, everyone benefits. Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asti and welcome to I'm Curious Podcast. Those words were from my guest today, Barbara Rode, who is a licensed therapist and the founder and board director of the Women's Red Tent Initiative. When you think about prison, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I think I used to think about men in prison jumpsuits. I'd think about criminals. I'd think about what I'd see on the news. But it was very rare that I would think about women. In the past 40 years, since 1980, the prison population has skyrocketed, particularly with women. The amount of women in jails and prisons across the United States since 1980 has ballooned by 750%. This means that not only are we sending a lot of women to prison, we're sending a lot of mothers. And as Barbara says, when you help the mom, you help the children. We know these women are in jails and prisons to be punished because perhaps they are convicted of a crime. But they need healing for themselves just as much as they need it for their children in our communities. And that's the mission that Barbara is on. The Red Tent Women's Initiative provides therapeutic classes within a jail in Pinellas County, Florida. The classes provide women with a safe space to share, to learn the tools to deal with any trauma that they've been through, and to heal. Because almost all of them will return to our communities. This matters. In this episode, Barbara tells us compelling stories, not only of how the Red Tent Women's Initiative came to be and the serendipity that led to it, but also of the women who have been through her program, their stories, and what's happened since. So let's dive in. Barbara, I am so grateful to have you here today, and I know I'm going to get to learn from you, and so I appreciate that. I want to actually jump right in by going backwards a little bit in your story. So before you got involved or before you created the Red Tent Women's Initiative, can you tell me what your life was like, what work you were doing, um, and did you have any connection to people who were incarcerated? Sure. I, um, it goes all the way back to when I was in college on Long Island, New York at Hofstra. So I, I went to Hofstra and I got a part-time job. I think I was a sophomore. I don't think I was a junior in college. I got a part-time job with a, an organization called Friends of Fortune who would go up to the, to the prisons, Greenhaven, Napanak, Bedford, Hills, um, Rikers Island, they would go up to the main prisons, maximum security, and help the inmates that were getting out in the next three to six months, help them try to build some kind of a life for re-entry. And it was, I was, I was taking criminal justice classes, but also sociology and psychology. And it was shocking to me. I, I ended up going up to these facilities quite often with a group of college students and meeting with the men and women and learning from them their stories and how they ended up in prison. And uh, it was quite an eye-opener. And they talked about their families, their children, trying to figure out how they would readjust when they left prison. And that's what the organization Friends of Fortune was all about. So I worked with them probably for a year and a half or two years. And I think it planted some seeds for me. And I was shocked at times and disgusted at times and appalled. 
what we were doing to people in the name of criminal justice. But then my life, you know, I moved to Florida. I, I ended up going back to school at Nova and getting my master's in psychology and, and going into private practice. So that all took kind of center stage, but I never forgot those, those times in those maximum security prisons. And to be honest, the inmates always treated us better than a lot of the staff and guards did. It was quite an eye opener. So, um, uh, so then years ago, I would say maybe 15 years ago, I got a call from a neighbor who was working at Goodwill Corrections. And she was um, working there, I think, as a guard. And because they have a, a contract with Department of Corrections, so they get a work release program there, here locally, where men and women come out of prison, but they're still under Department of Corrections. But they leave the prison, come to the work release facility, like Goodwill. They go out and find jobs, but they come back at night. They're still locked in. And if they do anything, you know, that challenges the system, then they go back to prison. They lose all that game time. Well, I, they called me because all of a sudden they had a, a large increase in the number of women inmates, and they didn't know how to handle it. They were used to primarily dealing with male inmates. So I knew, my neighbor knew me, and she knew I was doing a lot of um, clinical work. So she asked me to come in and do a staff training and help the staff understand the different needs of women versus men who have been in prison or jail. I ended up staying there five years, working part-time contractually while I still had my private practice. But I, I, I just fell in love with the population and it just opened my eyes and my heart again about what they go through. I ended up working primarily with the women, teaching them life skills, doing mental health assessments, and realizing quickly most of them were behind bars because of substance abuse. And the substance abuse was a direct um, outcome of the trauma they had been through, either as children, teenagers, young adults, or even recently, that that led to that downward spiral of self-medicating and then being arrested and going to jail or prison. So I, for five years, I worked with them and tried to help them understand the effects of trauma and how to decrease the toll it was still taking on them. And, and a lot of them had never connected the dots that because they were raped at six or date raped at 13 or gang raped at 11 or witnessed domestic violence as children or as a story I heard more than once, how they were lent to the community pedophile in exchange for money or drugs by a, an addict parent. So it really opened my mind and heart. But then, you know, I still had my private practice. The five years ended. I was working clinically in individual and family counseling. And I read the book, The Red Tent by Anita Diamond. It's a fiction book based in biblical times but it really touched my heart how she depicted that during these times communities villages would often set up a tent in the middle or off to the side where women could go when they were hurting going through changes hormonally challenged traumatized grieving 
and other women, older women usually, would join them there and mentor and coach and help them heal. And even the men in the village would leave food at the flap because they understood if a woman heals, everybody benefits, the family, the community. So that really touched my heart and I thought, wow, especially what I was hearing clinically from clients, how isolated a lot of women felt after giving birth, after starting families, after having problems. They didn't feel a sense of community or togetherness. So I thought, wow, we need some red tents. Then I read Dr. Shelley Taylor's research out of UCLA. She wrote a book called The Tending Instinct about how we women handle stress differently typically than men and how when we're allowed to come together with other women and share our stories and mentor and coach, we heal faster and we actually produce more chemicals, neurological, physical, that make us feel safe and secure. And I thought, wow, there's clinical evidence, research evidence that when we women are allowed to come together and help each other at times like this, we all benefit. And then two more things happened in my life that led me to go down to the jail in 2012 and start this program. Um, it was 2008 or nine. There was that oil spill off the coast of Florida, and BP was, was giving out grants. Well, my husband's business, he's an architect, so his business was affected by it. So I told him I had heard of a few people who applied for a grant, and they got it. So maybe we should try. And we did. And thank goodness he's good with details because he did the grant application. And we ended up getting it. And that combined with this one other thing that happened in my life made me go down to the jail and do what I did. Right about the time we got the BP check, I um, went to an estate sale in my neighborhood, two or three blocks from the house. And as soon as I walked in the door, I knew something was different. It was as if that woman had left that morning and everything she owned was for sale. And I ran into a neighbor, Barry, and I asked him if he knew what the story was here because it just felt so weird. People were everywhere in the house, walking all through it, buying things. And he said, oh yeah, Barbara, you never met her? She was a really neat woman. She was in her 50s. She had gone through a bad divorce a few years ago. And um, she took her own life a couple months ago. And that's her daughter by the front door collecting the money. So I thought, I knew it. I knew something was strange here. I'm gonna leave. But something pulled me into her bedroom. It was just on the second floor. Something just made me feel like I needed to go in there and send her good thoughts. So I did. I went upstairs. I walked into her bedroom to just send her good thoughts and uh, wish her well. And there on her nightstand was a copy of The Red Tent. I bought it. I brought it home. I put it in my office. I said to my husband that with the BP grant we got, I said, I'd like to start a red tent with this money. I'd like to go down to the Pinellas County Jail and offer to hire a part-time teacher and a part-time counsel. We'll just start off two days a week, four hours a day. Let's see what the jail says. I wanna start a red tent and I wanna help these women understand how trauma has affected them. And that's what I did, February, 2012. That's the kind of story that gives you chills when you hear all of those things that sort of aligned in order to bring this together. 
We did align. Yeah. Yeah. You were mentioning that your husband helps you with the grant. Yeah. But I'm curious, you know, maybe outside your husband, were there other people who thought, oh, what Barbara's doing, like, this is strange. You and I were talking right before we started recording and I was telling you my story and how I never really, I didn't know someone who had gone to prison until I started getting involved in this work that, you know, I I just saw people in prison as like criminals or what you see on law and order. So did other people around you think this is strange that, you know, Barbara's trying to go help these people in jail? It's it's certainly, I've gotten that feedback over the years. Why don't you just help sick children or Mm -hmm. children in need? And I try to explain to people, when you help the mom, you've helped the child. I know that clinically. People will sometimes bring their children to counseling sessions, almost like fix him or her. And and you try to immediately help the family understand this is a system issue, nine times out of 10. And if we help the whole family communicate differently, resolve conflict differently, handle challenges, the children will benefit and excel, thrive. So yes, I've had, I've, I've spoken, I remember a few years ago, I spoke to a local men's group. They got together for lunch every week and they raise money for organizations. And wow, within 10 or 15 minutes of standing up in front of them with my video slide and everything and, and looking at their faces, I realized I had not prepared for that, for that chat. They were, they were tuned out and not interested. Like, what is she doing? She's helping people who deserve you know, to be in jail. How crazy is that? So yes, it's been a bit of an interesting, but I think we're getting it more, Ashley. I think because of mass incarceration, because the number of women behind bars has gone up 750% in the last decade, I think we're getting it. And most of those women are moms. And the research shows if a woman, a mom, goes to jail or prison, the chances of her child someday being behind bars goes way up. So this is epidemic, this is systemic, and it's got to be changed, and we're all paying the price for it. I want to come back to the point you made about mothers, because that's definitely an important point. And like you said, the prison population, particularly with women, has just ballooned. And that's why when you were telling me that you were 19 or 20 when you first got involved, I thought that was mm-hmm. interesting, because now it's more, and I don't like these words, but in vogue, you know, to, yeah. to doing work yeah. in, in mass incarceration, but I don't think it was then. And so again, we're going to get back into some of these issues. I just want to step back for a moment. And can you tell us, what does this program look like? So for the women who are in jail, who participate a few times a week, what are they doing in the class? Good. Um, So the class is now, although with COVID, we, we have not had class for a few months. We're hoping to reopen any day. I hope, I hope. But the women, it's three days a week now, four hours a day. I designed the class to specifically focus on the trauma the women have been through, but not make it therapy. It's not a therapy session because they're in jail and and you don't want to open up that kind of, those kinds of wounds or scars and then send them back to their cell where they're going to be vulnerable. So I've always stressed, this is therapeutic, but it's not therapy. I designed the class to include handcrafts. Um, crocheting, embroidery, and um, coloring. Because I had read the research years ago that when women do things with their hands like that, their body immediately starts to relax more 
and ground and center, and they produce more of a brain chemical called oxytocin that makes them feel safe and secure. So I wanted them to come to class and have something to do, and they wouldn't feel like they were in the hot seat or you know, being analyzed. They immediately, we have all donated fabric and all that stuff. They immediately start creating something. And let me tell you, you go into a jail and say, I want to have needles, pins, and scissors. <laughs> they, they, they look like, what are you talking about, lady? It took eight months to get that approved, I think, six or eight months. And, and every class, we count every single item before class and after class because that would be contraband if it goes back into the general public. So um, they create things with their hands while they sit in a circle, it's 15 women at a time, with uh, at least two staff people and sometimes a volunteer. And they talk, they share, we go around and everybody checks in, even the staff and volunteers. We all check in, share a little bit about what's been going on. And then we teach the women different trauma healing curriculum. It's how to handle the emotional roller coaster they're on, how to handle conflict, how to manage anger or fear. We help them connect the dots because most of them never realized that's why they started abusing drugs because of the trauma. Yeah, you had mentioned, or your website says, I'm going to quote it, it says, almost all of the women we serve have undiagnosed and often untreated trauma that led them into the downward spiral of substance abuse and incarceration. Yep. My, right. Yeah, my first guest on this podcast was uh, David Garlock, and he was incarcerated for 13 years, at the beginning at the age of 19, for killing his abuser. So he was a survivor yeah. of sexual abuse and then ended up going on to kill his abuser. And one of the yeah. things that he said to me that really stuck with me, and he said, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've seen that over and over again with the people that I communicate with who are in prison that I, I you know, it's hard for me to even name one who didn't experience trauma before their incarceration. Yeah. Right. But David right. also says that healed people heal people. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about how you've seen trauma show up in the women you've worked with and why providing this space to heal, that's not specifically therapy, but that is therapeutic, why that's so yeah. important? It, you know, oftentimes over these eight and a half years, the women have said to me, it's the first time, and the jail warned me, Ashley, that women would not sign up for the class when I first proposed this. I made flyers and asked them to put it in the women's pods. And, and the women we deal with are nonviolent, and they're in jail, so they're in less than a year, and, and they volunteer for the class. We did not want to make it court-ordered, mandatory. And they warned me, no, the women won't sign up. You can try this, but they're so depressed when they are incarcerated because they've been pulled out of their, you know, their natural setting, their home, their family. They're worried about their children, their partners, that they, they won't come. We put up the flyers, and I think the first week, maybe we had six or seven in the class. The next week, maybe 10 or 12. By week three, we had our full 15 and a waiting list, and we've had a waiting list for eight and a half years. The women come into class, and they say it's such a warm, nurturing environment. We hug quilts on the walls. We have a stereo. We play soft music. It's very warm, inviting, and nurturing. 
and I know they're in jail because they're being punished, but for real change to happen, for, for them to begin to make different choices, they have to be given the opportunity to heal, to identify what happened to them and how they can best deal with it from now on, or they're just gonna return. The jail's recidivism rate is within um, a year of being released from jail. It's 60, I think it's 66% go back within a year. Ours is, um, oh no, I'm sorry, 44% go back within a year. Our recidivism rate of the women we serve, it's 76% are staying out, 24% go back. And the time between going back and being released is much longer. So we're showing a really positive effect on recidivism. And the women in class will tell us, this is the first time I've ever sat in the group, a group of women who aren't judging me, aren't you know, criticizing me, aren't trying to get something over on me or manipulate me. And, and many, many times I've heard from women, I love coming to Red Tent. You women see me the way I've always hoped to be seen. I thought that was amazing that we, we show them respect. We have very solid boundaries in class. If you, you know, cross the line or break the rule, then you lose your seat and somebody else gets to take the seat because we have to, we're in jail, we're in a Department of Corrections facility. But wow, they are protective of the class and they, they just talk about the healing potential it has. That's such a gift to feel seen, fully seen. And, and so I, I, I could see how that's so healing. This population that you're working with, because you're in a jail, so I'm assuming, because there's a difference between jail and prison, so I'm assuming this means that either some of the women haven't been convicted of something and might end up going on to serve time in a prison or they're in for short stints before they are released back into society. Is that correct? Right. We are not allowed to work with the women who have not yet been um, charged and convicted and given a sentence. That, and that's a Department of Corrections rule. So we only work with women who have been charged and their sentence is less than a year. That keeps them in the jail. And, and that has become, it's been challenging. It's, it's challenging because the population is always changing. We ask that the women who are put on our list for class have at least six weeks left of time because we've identified that at least six weeks of red tent effect and involvement is the best help. Some of them stay with us for months. If they're in jail for nine months and they got in the class off the waiting list, they can stay with us, but at least six and they have to have been sentenced and that's where they're serving their time. This next question is not specifically about your work, but do you know if there are other, it depends, I know which jail or prison you're in. Are there other programs? Is there a lot of programming for these women to have healing opportunities or, or not so much outside of what you're offering? There, there is not, Ashley. It's, it's really, really criminal. There is not. There, at our jail, and we have a good jail here in Pinellas County, our sheriff is very um, open to programs that show they make a difference. And we have um, AA in the jail. I believe we have Al-Anon and maybe Narcanon. Um, we have a domestic violence education group. But no, this is, this is a gap in society because we're incarcerating more women. 
we need to be in these jails and prisons. And that's Red Tent's goal, to have a red tent in every jail and prison, if possible, not just the U.S., but the world. Mm -hmm. These women need and deserve that kind of healing process so they don't go back or die. We've had some women leave class and die because they left. They, I remember one young woman about three years ago, she was so scared of leaving jail. She knew the temptation out there and she had two young children who were with her mother and she wanted to do it differently. She was a beautiful young woman. I think she was 19. And she did all right for the first six weeks and then she relapsed, overdosed and died. We've seen stories like that. That's heartbreaking. It's making me think so at the time of you and I recording this last night was the presidential debate, the final presidential yes. debate. And at one point, Vice President Biden was talking about his ideas for the criminal legal system and talking about people who have drug convictions shouldn't be going to jail, they should be getting treatment. Are you of the same opinion that uh, jail is not helping and that there should be alternatives for healing? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. It, it needs to be, we need to look at um, substance abuse, chronic substance abuse as a, a mental health, physical issue, not as a criminal issue. Now, I understand oftentimes along with that goes shoplifting or, you know, stealing to support the habit. But there's a difference here. There's a major difference. And we are we are just filling our jails and prisons with these people. It's costing us billions of dollars where truth, you know, something therapeutic like Red Tent could help them figure out what happened here and to begin to choose a different path. So yes, I'm a strong advocate of treating this differently. So many of the women who are incarcerated now are mothers, and so they're leaving behind their children when they go to jail or prison. And I always think about that now, how the bars of incarceration don't just close in the person who's incarcerated, but they reach or affect the children too. I think right. I was, I, I used to think like, oh, you know, these, these are bad parents then or something. But I think the, the kids just see their mom and dad for the most part. They're not seeing criminals. They're, they're having parents ripped right. away from their lives. Can you, do the women in this group, do they ever talk about this, how it feels to be separated from their kids and perhaps the barriers to regaining custody to them? Yes, yes. That is a huge topic of concern among the women. And I would say 85 to 90% of the women we've served have young children at home or young children in foster care and they have to fight to, to regain custody. I'd like to share a quick story. Before COVID, I think it was in January, I went to a, a local community meeting. It was with a nonprofit. They invited a bunch of different nonprofits that they helped support. And I got to stand up and talk a little bit about Red Tent as the other people did. And then when the night was over, I'm packing up my stuff and I'm standing at my table chatting with people and I feel this tap on my shoulder. And I turn and there's this, she looked like she was maybe 15 or 16 years old and she says, and she's crying. And she says, Miss Barbara, I think you might know my mom. And she says her name. And we've served almost a thousand women since 2012. I don't know all the names, but for some reason that name Hit, hit a bell and I remembered her. And, and I looked at this young girl and she said to me, my mom was in your program in 2015. Mm -hmm. 
And my mom has been sober since, she said. I got my mom back because of Red Ted. So I'm crying, she's crying. It was just amazing, Ashley, that I, I came home and said to my husband, I'm meeting their children now. I get to meet their kids who say, thanks. That made a huge difference in my family's life. Yeah, the, the ripple effects, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Can you explain to us for, like, you know, she said she got her mom back because of the substance abuse that her mom was experiencing, but some moms actually do temporarily lose their parental rights when they're in custody. Yes. Can you talk about what, what it takes to get their kids back, like the barriers that they face? Sure. Usually, once the, um, the system gets involved and, and the children have been removed, there's a plan that the parent has to follow, which includes counseling, um, all these different hoops they have to jump through to regain, to try to regain custody. It's expensive. It's very time-consuming. And you have to remember, when these women leave jail, their feet hit the ground running. They are trying to find work. They're trying to put a roof over their heads again, because oftentimes when a woman is incarcerated, um, if there was a man in her life, he, he doesn't oftentimes stand by her, as women do when men are incarcerated. There's a difference in those stats. So she's coming out many times from jail with nothing, clothes on her back that she was arrested in. And she's trying to rebuild a life quickly to regain a relationship in custody of the children. It, it can feel like mission impossible. And then as a society, we've set up so many barriers and hurdles. Landlords don't want to rent to someone with a record, um, try to find a job unless you're willing to stand on your feet all day and serve or do something like that. It's, it's just crazy. Many of them don't have a driver's license. They lost that when they went to jail. It's, I, I don't know how more of them don't end up back in jail because the hurdles are overwhelming. I'm going to ask you to put on your therapist cap for the moment. <laughs> Not that you haven't been doing that during this conversation. For the kids who their parents uh, lose custody of them, is this traumatic uh, for them? I, again, I, I want to understand if this is better for the kids, that you know, maybe they, they shouldn't be with their parents, or for the most part, is this very traumatic and it'd be helpful to be with their parents? I think it can go either way. I've met kids who it was a lifesaver to be removed because mom's addiction was so devastating and affecting everybody. So I think it can go either way. Our foster care system, it's an overwhelmed system. It, more people I wish would volunteer to be foster care parents and, and those with the right intention, of course. But yeah, talk about trauma. When I worked at Goodwill, I would watch the kids come visit one day a week if the parent was lucky enough to have someone bring the kids and they were allowed to see mom. And, and I'd watch the, the excitement and joy when the kids first arrived. And then I'd watch the separation anxiety and, and pain when it was time to leave after a few hours. And I, I just watched these kids and thought, how is this gonna play out in their lives? And clinically, we know parental separation is one of the biggest traumas you can go through. Of course, abuse is, neglect and abuse, but so separation. And it's, it's, it's always boggled my mind how often children would 
rather be with the parent they know than the unknown out there, even if it could be better or different. Mm. Thank you for clarifying that. I know that your organization also provides some resources for women once they are released. What are those resources or what do, what do you offer? We have, uh, through the generosity of the Catholic Diocese here in Pinellas County, we were able to um, hire a trauma counselor, a trauma-trained counselor, who works with any of our participants when they get out, if they really feel like they've identified issues they do need hardcore, hardcore therapy for. So we, we are able to offer that to participants when they get out. We had a support group on Mondays, but to tell you the truth, Ashley, the women are so overwhelmed with what they have to attend to when they leave jail, it's often hard to get them to come back together for a support group, it was a free support group, but we, we would be open to providing that kind of support down the road if enough women showed the interest. Our board, the Red Tent Board, has decided over the past year that the best thing we do is that class in the jail. And with the help of a professor from Stanford University, we have um, really solidified our curriculum. So it's now these 15 lessons all geared to helping people who have been traumatized uh, build the skill set so when they leave jail, they won't relapse or, or have less of a chance of relapse. So that's where our focus is right now, that we, we are just focused on building this program at the jail, solidifying the financial base, and then going out to other jails and prisons. We also collaborate with a local dentist because uh, dental problems, missing teeth, is a huge issue among our women. So we found a wonderful Dr. Daxon, Dr. Kim Daxon here in St. Pete, has generously taken referrals. Every year we send her these referrals of women who don't even feel like when they get out they can go look for a job because of, they can't smile, they're missing teeth, which also also, you know, often goes along with substance abuse. So she's doing this pro bono, helping them replace the missing teeth so that they have a new image and a new smile. We had a wonderful participant, Audrey, who she, she was missing her whole bottom set. And after her work with Dr. Daxon, oh my God, you couldn't get her to stop smiling. It was mm -hmm. wonderful. I love that you seem to have surrounded yourself or people are attracted to this cause. You found this compassion with this dentist. I, yeah. I look at the mass incarceration crisis and I think, oh my gosh, what a disaster. But in the space of these disasters, we're also seeing all these people who are fighting hard or working hard to change them and upend them and spread more love. And so it's, it's heartwarming to, to hear that end of it too. And what I just wanted to highlight from one of the things that you said that you were saying the support group post-incarceration, it was sort of hard to get going. And yeah. just to, to reiterate that, because these women, I was speaking to one woman who's recently in reentry, and she was telling me that she had to get her driver's license back and she didn't have a car. And, you know, yeah. we're, we are on Long Island. There's not great public transportation. And so there are so many barriers, like you said. And so it's not just yeah. like they just don't want to attend a support group for the most part that there's so much going on. So I just wanted to make that, uh, add that to amplify that. Um, you've told some stories already. Is there any memorable story of a woman in the program that has stuck with you that you'd like to share? 
We had one woman years ago in the very beginning of the program. She was probably in her late 40s, early 50s. And her substance abuse started after she had her three children in her car. She was at a gas station putting gas in the car. The car exploded. She could only get two of the three kids out. And she could not get that little guy out of the back seat in his car seat. And that's when she started abusing substances. And I remember hearing her story and like it does even now telling me, it just gives me chills. Like I, I would, I don't know where I'd be or what I'd be doing if I lived through something like that. These women's stories break your heart at times and we're traumatizing them even more by then penalizing them and punishing them and taking them out of their lives and their support systems. Yeah, it's hard not to feel a little bit infuriated at the prison system when you hear stories like that, that I, again, I couldn't imagine either being in her situation. Of course, your your life's going to shift and the choices you make are going to change. It doesn't um, condone people's actions that are harmful, but it still helps us understand what's going on and that perhaps right. there are other ways to, to deal with this and prevent harm and, and help people heal. That's right. On a personal level for you, how has both founding this organization, which is a huge undertaking, um, and just this work, how has it changed you? Yeah, good question. So this has been all my life, my adult life, I always felt like there was something else I needed to be doing. I have a, a you know, a private practice and I see about 20 clients a week. And, and I've been involved in other things, trying to give back in different ways. But I always felt like there was something else out there I needed to accomplish. And when this all came together with the BP check and, and reading those different things and the work at Goodwill and that estate sale, and I started it, quickly I, I felt like, this is what I've always been meant to do. I've always been meant to start this red tent. And, and I tell the women when I go in the jail, they feed and nurture my soul to hear their stories, to hear, to watch the changes in them week to week. You know, when they first walk in, they might have a chip on their shoulder. They might be suspicious, closed up. And then I come back a few weeks later and they're, you know, crocheting this hat for their daughter who's in foster care. And they're telling the other women they need to sign up and, and get on the waiting list. And they're beaming. They're, they're just, it's just amazing to me. They, they make it all worthwhile. When I'm feeling drained or down or... Like, what the heck? This, this is a lot. I go there, and they, they're just amazing. They're so strong and resilient for what they've been through. I'm going to use that word aligned again, because it feels like this was aligned and, and sort of like this was waiting for you to step into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It your your program is, you know, very successful. Like you said, there's this waiting list that more women yeah. want to be part of it. I know the sheriff has celebrated it. Um, yeah. And we've seen, we generally have seen that education within prisons and programs like this really do 
help with healing and reduce recidivism. And because so many people, we don't just send them to jail and that's it and they're there for life. And we do do that. But uh, so many of them return. And so this, like you were talking about before, lowers the recidivism rate. And yeah. also it costs us, it costs us so much money to incarcerate someone. I always hear the numbers because I'm in New York state and the, the amount that it costs to incarcerate someone for a year is more than my college education was at a, a private Ivy League institution in the state. Yeah, and I just think that's wild. Do you have a message for other sheriffs or lawmakers about the importance of having this education or this healing work, or perhaps, <laughs> this is a big question, so you can choose what you want to answer, or perhaps to anyone listening, like how can we ensure that um, people are getting education and healing tools as opposed to just punishment? Right, right. Boy, that's so important. And, and you know, our program is so grassroots. It's it's not expensive at all. All the jails or prisons would need to do is reach out to us and we could share the information. We're right now trying to build the infrastructure so we know how to spread it to other facilities. Because why, why create something new? Use what we've gotten, what we've learned over the eight and a half years and, and put it into your jail or prison and watch the women respond. And we're saving you know, we're saving so many tax dollars and we're saving communities and we're making them safer because the women aren't going to come out now and, and, and write a false check or steal from a neighbor or something. They're, once, once they're on that path of deeper understanding and insight into themselves and what led them in this direction, it's, it, to me, it's a no-brainer. We're saving tax dollars. We're making communities safer. We're helping families get healthier. This, this needs to happen in all of their jails and prisons. I love that. Watch the women respond. Like, watch what happens. Yeah. And I'm so glad that now you're going to, you know, that you haven't before, but now you're going to get even more of an opportunity to spread your message that hopefully this can reach more jails across the country. You have something very exciting going on. Uh, can you tell us all about Women of Worth? Yes, that's so exciting. L'Oreal of Paris has a, an amazing program every year, an award for 10 women who have have thought outside the box, I guess, or started things like grassroots efforts. And they, um, and I was, I'm so grateful to be one of those women they selected for 2020. So if you go, if anyone goes to womenofworth.com, you will see all 10 of us and you get to vote and you can vote every day. They're already giving all the charities $10,000 in December. And then the Charity that gets the most votes gets another 25,000. And they're opening doors for us nationally that, you know, we, we've just been a little grassroots effort. This, I believe this is gonna launch us to be able to spread to other jails and prisons. So it's quite an honor and quite an opportunity. Oh, and there'll be a special show the night before Thanksgiving, Wednesday, I think it's the 25th of November. At 8 p.m. on NBC, you'll be able to see all our charities, and they'll interview each of us, and it's, it's going to be shown nationwide. So what exposure for all of us. That's amazing. I love that. I'm definitely excited to tune in. So 
Barbara, last year, how I, I connected with you is that my friend Brittany Chavone uh, is the founder of a nonprofit called Brittany's Baskets of Hope. Brittany happens to have Down syndrome, and she, through her work, gives oh. hope and love and resources to families across the country who have babies with Down syndrome. Oh. And yeah, I'm, I'm very blessed to serve on the board of directors of her organization. And last year, she was actually the national winner of the Women of Worth program. I will go read her story. Good. So that's how, you know, when I knew they were announcing this new Women of Worth class and I saw your story, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to read <laughs> Um So I know how special this journey is um, and what you're doing. And the, the class of women is all just so beautiful. And I imagine to, to connect to everyone, but I obviously am particularly drawn to your story. So I know last year, which was pre-COVID, there was this gala where every, everyone joined together in New York City. Yeah. I'm just curious personally, is that happening again this year? No, but I'm, I'm glad because of COVID, they couldn't do that. So instead, they're doing the NBC show. That's what I was wondering. So you yep. obviously had that, I guess, a film crew came and filmed your story, yep. right? Yes, they so did. I'm just going to tell you, and I'm so glad now that a national audience on TV is going to get to see it because we got to see it at the gala last year, everyone's video. Oh. And... And so it was just, you wouldn't expect it. Not only do you cry at your own charities video, but every story is so moving and beautiful. I know you haven't gotten to see your video yet, but I, I promise you you're going to need tissues. They're beautiful and heartwarming and really well wow. done. Uh, so I definitely encourage everyone to check that out. So like you said, we have some time to vote for you in order to determine who's going to be that national winner. Yes. Um, can you tell us where we can vote and how long we have to vote? Please go to the website, womenofworth.com, and, and the voting is every day. You can vote once a day until November 27th. Okay, perfect. And I'm going to put that in the show notes as well, so people can just click on it and go ahead and vote, vote for Barbara. So Barbara, with that, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story. You have such a, a beautiful spirit and heart. And I, I also have to say, I love your voice. That's <laughs> so soothing oh, thank you. And, and wonderful. And so thank you so much. I wish you so much luck. And I'm definitely going to be following along. And I've, I've already voted and I'll keep voting. Thank you, Ashley. I really appreciate this. You take very good care. And I can't wait to listen to the podcast. And I want to hear your other podcasts. Very interesting. I want to close with a very brief story. Adnan Khan is the executive director of Restore Justice in California, and he was formerly incarcerated at San Quentin, and he tweeted the other day about power. He wrote, I used to live by the meaning of power as control, domination, and superiority over others. One day in my cell board, I decided to look it up and learned that power can also mean a source of energy. That moment changed the way I wanted to show up with power. And so then I tweeted about power and I thought about what do, how do we want to fuel others? How do we want to fuel the world? Do we want to fuel them with or generate enthusiasm and positivity and light? And I said, this is our power. And then Amber Vangas, who will be a, a guest on this podcast as well, she tweeted back and she said, love and forgiveness are power. And so I wanted to close with her words, love and forgiveness are power. Because I believe that is the essence of what Barbara is doing. Showing that the most powerful thing we can offer to other human beings is not revenge or solely punishment. It is 
seeing them deeply for who they are. It is love. It is forgiveness. And in that space of mercy, it's a chance to heal. Thank you for listening. Visit womenofworth.com to vote for Barbara you have until November 27th. And I'll catch you next time on I'm Curious Podcast.